0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, This morning is week two in our new series, which we've entitled Seven. And our focus for seven weeks is on the seven churches uh, that existed in the first century in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And John, the disciple of Jesus, also the author of John's Gospel and the author of the letters that we find in the New Testament of John, was spoken to by Jesus, received a revelation from the risen Jesus, and was given the task of communicating this revelation to the seven churches by way of a circular letter. And that circular letter is found in our Bibles. The last book is the book of Revelation. Now, each of these churches in Asia Minor was very, very different. And uh, as we look at all these churches, we can see a mixture of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, some were greatly commended by the Lord, and the Lord had no complaint against them. But for others, the reverse was true, in that Jesus had nothing at all good to say about some of these churches. Well, last week, we started off the series and we looked at the very first church, the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus was commended for being enthusiastic, enduring, theologically enlightened. as was a busy and an active church. But the risen Lord who sees everything, who knows all things, saw something in that church which he could not commend them for. In fact, they were criticised for it. And that was that they had lost their first love. The church at Ephesus had become so busy doing the work of the Lord that they had no time for the Lord himself. And uh, Jesus says to this church that they were to that they were to remember the height from which they had fallen and they were to take ownership of their sinful ways and they were to turn back to Jesus and to exhibit the love that they showed right at the very start of their Christian lives. Well, 10 years ago, I was offered a three-month sabbatical and uh, it was an opportunity for me to do some research and to write and uh, part of the deal was that uh, I couldn't turn up at church here on a Sunday morning during the whole three months or actually turn up at any time. Tamworth Elium Church was simply out of bounds for me. And uh, the leaders knew that if I'd be back, I'd probably start getting involved in church affairs and then I wouldn't truly benefit from my sabbatical. So the leaders were actually being cruel to be kind. So what what did I do with myself on Sunday mornings? Well, I, I stayed in bed. No, I'm joking. But obviously the way that uh, your reaction to that joke, you thought I was serious and uh, it obviously gives you an indication or gives me an indication of your thoughts on me. Right, okay. No, seriously, what I did was um, I visited uh, many other churches and I wanted to learn from them. I went with a heart of learning and to discover what was good and maybe also what was not so good on times. And I visited uh, evangelical churches from a number of denominations and it was uh, really, really quite an interesting experience. Some of the churches that I visited were very strong on worship. Others were strong on the scripture teaching. Uh, Others were very strong on their community emphasis. Um, Some were strong on their welcome. (laughs) Others were not so strong on their welcome. Um, I remember visiting one church. I'm not going to tell you which church. But uh, I was, I parked the car, I was visiting, uh, sorry, I I parked the car, and the moment I got out of the car, the car park welcome team welcomed me. And then I was making my way to the church, and I got visited by a second uh, bank of uh, welcomers. They were outside the church. I went in through the church doors, and then I got welcomed a third time by the inside (laughs) welcome team. And then by the Inside welcome team, I got escorted to the table where all the literature was. And then I got welcomed on the inside, inside welcome team. And then I took a seat and I was welcomed about five or six times more. And then throughout, in the middle of the service, we had the piece, And then I was welcomed some more again. And I, I, you know, I thought it was wonderful, really, but it was a little bit claustrophobic, The following week I experienced quite the exact opposite, Um, I wasn't even welcomed by the welcome team at the door. Uh, And the guy who was doing the welcoming uh, just shoved a newsletter in my hand without even greeting me good morning. Even a smile would have been appreciated but it didn't happen. In fact throughout that entire service no one said anything to me, no welcome at all. And I left at the end of the service without having spoken to anyone there. I thought, this must be a fluke. Um, I must have just turned up on a bad Sunday. Maybe the A team of welcomers were on holiday. So I decided then a few weeks later to go back to that church for a second visit. And and lo and behold, exactly the same thing happened again. You see, the point I'm coming to in all of this is that I'm sure that many churches have great strengths and others have areas which are perhaps blind spots. And we are all human. Churches are made up of human beings. And, um, you know, they're both good, bad, and indifferent. And these churches that Jesus communicated with uh, 2,000 years ago had their strengths and had their weaknesses. And in these letters that we are looking at over a number of weeks, um, we are hearing what Jesus thought about these churches, which is... More important, his judgment, don't you agree, is far more important than our judgment on what is good or what is not so good in a church. So we're on the second of those churches today. It's the church at Smyrna, and uh, we are going to read this together. Just four verses we are looking at today. I'll put them on screen for you. And um, if you've got your Bibles, then please follow along as well. I'm reading from the New International Version. To the angel of the church in Smyrna right. Now, we said last week that this word angel in the Greek of the New Testament is the word angelos, which can mean messenger. Now, there are some people who believe that uh, the person that was being addressed here was the guardian angel of that church. It's a nice idea. I'm not sure if it's right. But it can also mean the human messenger, and therefore the the, the letter is directed to perhaps the pastor of the church. I think that probably makes more sense. And this letter was directed to a first-century church in the city of Smyrna. Now, if you were to go to Smyrna in western Turkey, that city is still there. It's not called Smyrna any longer, it's called Izmir, and there are 4.2 million people who live there. These are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say there are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown whoever as ears let them hear what the spirit is says to the churches the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death so if the church that we looked at last week Ephesus was the backslidden church then this church Smyrna is the church which is persecuted and what we're going to do this morning is just walk through these four verses and we're going to ask the lord please show us, reveal to us, how we are to apply this teaching to a church 2,000 years ago in a very different set of circumstances to ours, how they apply to us today. You see, it's not enough just to read this and to look at what was happening historically in that church 2,000 years ago. It's a good place to start, but we need to go beyond that, and we then must ask, What does this mean to us today? How does this apply to us today? So let's pray together. Lord, we just pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you desire to say to us today through your spirit and through your words. And we pray also, Lord, that you will enable us and empower us to act upon all that you reveal to us in our time this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord introduces himself uh, to this church at Smyrna and he says, I put the words there in red on, on screen for you, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now as I mentioned just a moment ago these Christians in the city of Smyrna were suffering great persecution for their faith and for them to hear that Jesus was the first and the last I believe would have reassured them that Jesus is telling them essentially that there is nothing outside of his knowledge or beyond his power, that he is before them and he is after them, and he is the one who holds their lives and their church in the palm of his hands. You know, sometimes when we struggle with life's circumstances, whether it's some affliction or difficulty or debilitating illness, We can sometimes lose perspective, can't we? You know, when you're going through stuff. Come on, be with me on this, please. When you're going through stuff in life, you know that that can be your main focus and that's all that you're focusing on about and you can lose a real sense of perspective. And that, perhaps, is, uh, is, is our trouble sometimes. And what John's words are doing here from Jesus is that he is bringing back perspective into their lives. When they were going through all of this suffering, he is saying that Jesus, he's the first and the last. He's got this covered, in other words. He's before it, he's behind it. He knows, he knows. Maybe this morning, that is something that we need to remind ourselves in. Okay, we're not going through a persecution that the church at Smyrna went through. But that is something that we need to grasp a hold of in our own lives, to know that he is the first and the last. We serve a God who is the beginning and the end. He's not caught out. He's got that situation that you, are in, uh, that you are going through in the palm of his hand. He goes on to say that he is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now again, these words were so appropriate and so relevant to this church at Smyrna because this was a church that was going through a time of great persecution and many of their family and friends were paying the ultimate sacrifice that they were losing their lives because they were followers of Jesus. And they were bold and courageous and their lives really stand out as an immense challenge and example to us who are living in, as Western Christians today. But I can well imagine, despite their faith and despite their their boldness, I am sure, pretty sure, because they were human, as we are human, that they would have gone through those times of doubt. There would have been times when they said, is being a follower of Jesus really worth it? What I have believed and committed my life to, is it true? Am I being a fool in following Jesus? I'm sure they didn't live in that place. But I'm also pretty sure from time to time that they must have even asked themselves those questions. And John is reminding them here that they have committed themselves to the one who has not only suffered death, but he has actually conquered death. That he is the one who has died and who has risen again. At that um, end of that great chapter concerning the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul concludes that uh, that chapter by saying these words, writing these words. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, I love this. In other words, he is saying that the sacrifices that followers of Jesus make in this life only make sense if there is a resurrection. That's the only way that it can make sense. That our labour, our sacrifices, our efforts in the Lord are not wasted because Jesus rose from the dead and one day we will too. (coughs) Otherwise, it just simply doesn't make sense. Let's move on. Verse 9. Jesus says to this church, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. The Greek word used there for poverty is uh, a a Greek word which is far stronger than the way that we would use the word poor today when we speak of poor. Very often in in our Western culture, when we speak of poverty, we speak of people who have um, nothing over, nothing superfluous, not being able to afford a holiday or purchase a car, new clothes, or not having a satellite television. The poverty of the Christians in Smyrna was far more extreme than that. They were penniless, they were destitute. And their poverty was on a totally different level than we could ever, ever imagine in our country. There were no food banks, there was no welfare state, there was no benefit system. And the reason for their poverty and affliction was that they were persecuted. And the persecution came from two different areas. It came from the Romans and it came from the Jews. The Romans at this time instituted Emperor worship, I think I mentioned this last week. And that every person who lived in the Roman Empire at that time needed to take a pinch of incense and to burn it on an altar once every year. And once they did that, oh, and, and confess that Caesar is Lord as they did that, and as they did that, they were given a certificate. And they could go away and, with their certificate and then worship any deity, any god they wanted to for the rest of the year. But once a year they had to do that. But as you can well I- imagine, no Christian would ever want to do that. To make that sacrifice, as it were, to Caesar. Because they only had one Lord, and his name was Jesus. And persecution came from the Romans, but persecution also came from a Jewish uh, community. Most of the, the converts uh, to Christianity came from this large Jewish population in the city of Smyrna and you can well imagine that the Jewish religious leaders were not happy about that and so made life as difficult as possible. These enemies of the church um, came along, they they wrecked homes, set fire to the crops. Now that's something isn't it that we see today and if any of you have uh, subscribed to Open Doors or one of the other uh, great organizations that supports the persecuted church, you will know all that is going on. Sometimes it uh, reaches our news channels. Remember what happened on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka uh, with the churches being bombed and 250 Christians being killed with another 500 who were injured. Um, Foreign Secretary uh, Jeremy Hunt said recently that the persecution of Christians in parts of the world is at near genocide level. And he also said that Christians are the most persecuted religious group on the planet. We hear so much these days about Islamophobia. And in a sense, you know, we don't want anybody not to be able to worship, you know, freely. And yes, you know, we we, we must take note of that. But I tell you what, Christians, far more than sometimes the media will tell us about, Are persecuted, and are the most persecuted religious group in the entire world. Christianity or Christians are now persecuted in 144 countries of the world. And to this church in Smyrna, the Lord says, "I know your affliction and your poverty. Yet you are rich." Sorry, did we get that right? rich? How can they be rich? They didn't have anything. And Jesus is telling them essentially that they are rich in things that matter. In material and financial terms, they were dirt poor. But in spiritual terms, they were incredibly rich. In a few weeks' time, when we finish this series, we'll come onto the last of the churches, a church at a place called Laodicea. And for them, it was the opposite way around. In fact, They were materially rich, but yet they were poor. This is what uh, Jesus says of them. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But do you not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked? Great irony there, isn't it? This church at Smyrna, in material and financial terms, they were absolutely poverty stricken and yet the Lord says that they are rich. But the church at Laodicea, in material financial terms, they're incredibly rich but yet the the Risen Lord, with his X-ray eyes, he says that they are poor. I find that very, very challenging. The Lord's evaluation of a church is often very different to our own evaluation. Sometimes we might be impressed by certain aspects of a church's life, or its ministry, or its buildings, or its programs, or its worship, or its coffee. But the Lord isn't always impressed by the things that impress us. Remember that great scripture from 1 Samuel, that man looks at the outward appearance. Man looks at the externals, but the Lord really sees how they are. He looks at the heart. And his evaluation of Tamuth Church, his evaluation of our lives is really what matters. Now, history tells us many horrific stories of of Christians being persecuted in this city of Smyrna. Perhaps the most famous of all is the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna at one time and he was a, a really godly, respected man. And the captain of the police respected Polycarp but begged him to curse Christ and say that Caesar was Lord, otherwise Polycarp would be going to the flames. Polycarp responded with these words. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Again, they threatened Polycarp with fire, begging him just to say this. And he said, you threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly drenched. For you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? He said to them, do as you will. And then they rushed to nail him to the stake. But he said to the crowd, leave me as I am. For he who gives me the power to endure the fire would grant me to remain in the flames unmoved even without the security you give me by nails. Wow. You see, that was the sort of persecution that the Christians in Smyrna encountered, but it wasn't the only physical violence that they suffered. They also suffered verbal violence, slander. I know, says Jesus, about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now these are incredibly strong words coming from the lips of Jesus. The Jews of that place, they like to refer to themselves as the assembly of God. That's the way that they thought about themselves. But Jesus turns that about and he says, you're not actually the assembly of God. What you are is the synagogue of Satan. My word, that's very powerful, isn't it? Because it was Satan's work that they were performing. Now, Satan is a Hebrew word which means accuser or slanderer. Devil is a Greek word which means accuser. And therefore, any form of slander is a work of the enemy, the accuser. And it's very, very, very important for Christians, for us today, never, ever, to do the work of the devil for him by accusing other Christians. So what was this uh, this church at Smyrna accused of? Now, uh, I'm sorry to say this, but over many years I've been caught up and I've been slandered personally. I know that this church from time to time has been slandered and it's painful, it's insidious. Slanderers fight dirty and it's almost impossible possible to fight against. But we, me personally or us as a church, we have never ever been accused of what the church at Smyrna were accused of. I think that it would give any pastor a nervous breakdown actually. So what were they accused of? Well, first of all, some of the people outside, those who were outside the Christian community heard The words of Jesus being repeated at the Lord's Supper. This is my body and blood, take this in remembrance of me. So those outside who didn't understand accused the Christians of cannibalism. And then Christians, one of the things that they did together, that they had an agape feast or a love feast together, which was almost like a bring and share. But again, the the words agape, love feast, oh... They're promoting orgies in that church. Thirdly, Christians were also accused of splitting families. And the reason for this is that occasionally a man or woman became a Christian and their spouse didn't get married to a Christian they didn't want to stay with this person because it changed everything and their their marriages ended in divorce. They were also accused of atheism. (laughs) How does that work then? They were accused of atheism because they, unlike other religions, had no objects of worship, had no images to bow down to. And people would say to them, where are your gods? And they were accused of atheism. And fifthly, they were accused of being politically disloyal because they would not bow the knee to Caesar. Now imagine those sorts of slanders being spread around Tamworth about this church. Oh, don't go to wheel the cannibals. This <laughs> is so far fetched. It's, it's crazy. Um, uh, they hold orgies in that church. They're about splitting families. Uh, this is awful stuff, isn't it? It's pretty hard to really recover your reputation when stuff like that is being talked about you in the community. And I don't know about you. If you were slandered, well, certainly if I'm slandered, I just want to put the record right. I want to give the truth. I want to clear my name. But you know what, it's sometimes like trying to get spaghetti back in the tin. Because once stuff is out there, it tends to stay out there and it's not so hard and not so easy. But Satan, we're told, is a slanderer and we need to be aware of his schemes. Do you know when that happens to us that we are in good company? Not only in terms of the Christians at Smyrna, but also Jesus himself. Jesus was slandered. This man said he would tear down the temple. This man told us not to pay taxes to Caesar. This man claims that he's a king. And to us all, Jesus says, I know. I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know those who slander against you. And Jesus knows from both experience, but he also knows from revelation. On those occasions when perhaps you're going through the mill and all stuff is breaking out against you and someone comes up to you and says I know what you're going through and on the inside you're thinking no you don't you haven't got a clue you have not been where I am just now and you're just wanting to strangle a person who comes up to you to say that in Christian love you just want to do something. Get out of my face. That's what you're thinking. You're not saying it because you're polite people. But when someone who really has been through what you are going through comes up and says, look, you know, I know I've been there. It makes a difference. It really makes a difference because you know that they're on the same page. And there's a sense of uh, fellowship almost in sufferings. And sometimes that they can impart wisdom to you because they have been at that place. And Jesus has been at that place, and He says, I know that He has been touched by the affirmities that we struggle with and suffer, that He knows. So he knows from experience, but he also knows from revelation in this church. And he, this is something that he keeps recurring, uh, keeps recurring in these letters. To all seven churches, he says, I know, I know, I know your deeds, I know how it is for you. That uh, great psalm, Psalm 139, brings such great comfort to us, doesn't it? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. That's a bit like first and last. And you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and too lofty for me to attain. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus knows I don't know what you're going through right now this morning but he knows it's so reassuring that he knows that affliction he knows that illness he knows that worry he knows that that burden that you are bearing alone he knows of how you have made a stand for him and been belittled by others he knows of those sleepless nights of anxiety he knows of that injustice which was done to you He knows the way that you have been slandered or misunderstood. He knows the lies that have been said. He knows the great difficulty that you have with your children or your family or your neighbours. He knows those financial difficulties. He knows the temptations that you so struggle with. Such knowledge, said the psalmist, is too wonderful for me. But he also knows your heart's desire is to serve his purposes. And he knows that you love him with all of your heart. And he knows that you are the center of his, that he is the center of your life. And he knows that your greatest ambition is to serve him and honor him and live for his glory. He knows you know. He knows. Verse 10, verse 11. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, we were saying last week that Revelation is a highly symbolic book. And there have been a number of suggestions made over what this 10 days represents. And I could repeat this morning a whole list of what the commentators and scholars say those 10 days represent but the bottom line is no one knows but the important truth here is that this trial will come to an end that's what's being said it is not it will not go on forever it is limited it is not indefinite And if the Lord says it's going to be 10 days, it's not going to be 9 days, and it's not going to be 11 days. And the Lord knows not only what you have gone through, but what you are presently going through and what you are about to go through. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the one who encourages them at this time of, of persecution, that it's limited, it won't last forever. There's a great verse, and you probably all know it, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Which says, "No temptation has seized you except what is common to man." In other words, when you go through stuff, God hasn't got it in for you. It's just common to us all, to all of us, that it's our common lot. It's part of our humanity. And um, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 10:13, "And God is faithful; he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear." And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. And I just want to encourage you this morning. God is in control. If you forget everything else or, you know, it just goes past you, I want you to take that with you today. God is in control. That he works all things together for good. Even though on those times when we don't truly understand what he is doing with us, you've heard me say many times before that even when you're going through the furnaces of life circumstances, remember God is the one who has his hand on the thermostat. So, what these uh, afflicted Christians to do in the meantime? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 10. And Jesus says to them, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. You see, trials and tribulations, the difficult times in our lives, help us to grow in our faith. They help us to grow as Christians, to become more mature. As someone once said, that Christians are just like uh, tea bags, no good till they have been through hot water. But, and this is so important, what I'm going to say now, Trials by themselves do not make us mature in our faith as Christians. Trials by themselves do not make us mature as Christians. It's how we react to those trials that is all important. You know, some people that you meet, they will go through the stuff of life. And it's tough, yes, but they moan and they whinge and they gripe and they grumble and they blame God and they blame others and they have a pity party. But other people, they just seem to have such a different attitude. They have a quiet determination. They have a joy about them. They have a trust. They have an assurance. They have a confidence that God is still on the throne even when it appears that he's not. You see, spiritual growth isn't automatic. It's how we react to those difficulties which is all important. And for some Christians, all the trials do for them is they make them bitter not better because they're approaching them in the wrong way James in his letter tells us to consider our trials as pure joy of course we're not joyful for our trials that would be insincere that would be perverse but we can be joyful in our trials well how, how can that be that can be because we have God on our side we have God on our side he is the first and the last the one who knows past present and future the one who has conquered the grave and so shall we and the one who will remain faithful at all times as Paul writes if God is for us what who can be against us? whoever as is let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches and this morning that's a challenge to us as well isn't it You know we can come in, we can listen, but there's two ways of listening. Let's listen and embrace the lessons in this and learn from them and move on, even in our difficulties. And then finishes off in verse 11, The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What on earth is the second death? It's Revelation. The only other time this is mentioned is later on in Revelation when we are told that there's a day coming when death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire and the lake of fire is the second death. Explains that then, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> Not really. Not really. Revelation is full of bizarre imagery and it's difficult to be sure what it means, but the one thing that I am pretty sure is that such images should never be taken literally. I know that there are some who take stuff from Revelation and somehow take it literally and that's very often what makes the cults too. But I would guess that probably these images refer to a kind of future judgement, I would say that much and no further. So Jesus appears to say here that if they are faithful and even die martyrs' deaths because they trust him, it is only physical death that they will experience. Those who have power over them will only have power over them in this world. And that seems to be what Jesus is saying there. Okay, what's our take home for today? Let me give you a few thoughts. Guys, if you'd like to come back and we'll... uh, worship together in a few moments Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 17 to 18 and it's a great prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and he says this I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you know the hope to which he has called you. And I would say today that we too, every one of us, we need that revelation and wisdom too. That the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened to see him more clearly. That if he is for us, who can be against us? That if he is the first and the last, then nothing takes him by surprise. That if he is... Omniscient, if he is all-knowing, then he knows all about our past, our present and our future. If he is all-powerful, then he today can say to the storms, as he said to the storms on Lake Galilee, be still. If he is faithful and true, then he can be trusted with every ambition, dream and problem that we encounter. If he has overcome the power of the grave, then death has lost its sting. And ultimately, we too will overcome. You see, when we see him with new eyes, I believe that every problem and difficulty looks far less threatening and intimidating than they would otherwise. Many years ago, when I became a Christian way back in the 70s, yes, I'm old. I remember our church on a Sunday morning singing a very simple refrain. Some of you who have been Christians uh, a longer time will remember that. I'm not asking you to sing it today, but turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Very simple little song, and yet the truth of that so wonderful that the things of the earth, you know, the stuff that surrounds us, the stuff that we struggle with in life, the stuff which is so often the focus of our attention, that just loses, it pales into insignificance in the light of his glory and grace when we turn our eyes upon him. And the words of Jesus through John to Smyrna, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to sing in a moment, and maybe this morning you would like prayer. Maybe there's something that I've said, or something that I said has caused you to think about something else, you know, the way that it works, and you just feel that, yes, something has consolidated in your life this morning, something's being confirmed. And you would like another Christian just to pray alongside you, and pray with you today. We would consider that a great privilege. I know this stuff going on, not because I have some great revelation of what's going on in your lives, but we are frail humanity. This is the stuff that we, we often struggle with. And to have someone just to come and just pray with us, very often it makes a huge difference. The two of you can do, uh, agree together that you can pray with one heart over maybe stuff that's going, maybe physical, financial, it may be something to do with um, your future, maybe something to do with your family. And it's great just to take this opportunity today to do that. A number of our prayer ministry uh, folk are around. Please, guys, w- w- wear, wear your badges as well when you're doing that for those who are not uh, familiar with our church family. And uh, maybe that you've come with someone, we often say this, maybe someone that you know uh, well We'd love to be able to pray with you. Now let's just do that. Let's just take this moment of opening up our hearts and coming before Jesus. Would you stand please?